in Habakkuk. The prophet is crying out, How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you, Violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore the law is paralyzed. And justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. How long, O Lord, are things going to remain the way they are? Sounds similar to the Lord Jesus Christ when he was on the cross. And he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But maybe this very same cry sounds very familiar to you because you yourselves have been crying out to the Lord, Oh God, how long? How long do I have to put up with this that's going on in my life? Are you not listening to my prayers? Can you not hear me? Uh, Can you not understand what I need? Are you unable to help me? How long, Oh God? Am I going to have to face the darkness of that great loss in my life of the loved one and the the aloneness that I feel and I cry out to you over and over again but God that that sense of alone and loneness will not go away Lord you know I've been calling out to you how long oh God that the child of mine who's wandered away from the Lord and is doing things that are are, are, are putting his or her life at risk. How long, oh God, can't you hear? Can't you see what's happening? Don't you care about me? Lord, how long am I going to call out to the God who heals with this illness, this sickness that is, that is taking my life away, and I know that you can help me, but, but how long, oh God, and you're, you're not listening to me. Why don't you help me? Why are you helping others, but you don't help me? How long, oh God, am I going to call out to you in this employment situation? You know how desperate it is, and I've cried out to you, and I've called out to you. And you tolerate that the unrighteous are mistreating me and persecuting me and making fun of me. And it goes on relentlessly day after day. Oh God, how long? How long, oh God, are you going to leave me in this state of anxiety? Where everything's churning day and night and everything's going. I I think I'm losing my mind and I go to sleep. I lay my head on a pillow and I hope that I'll wake up and it'll be different the next day. But God, it's not different the next day. And I wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning. I wake up at 4 o'clock in the morning. And and I, I don't know where to turn in this hour of darkness. This dark night of the soul, oh God, that's turned into serious depression. How long, oh God? I don't know if I can take it any longer. And so Habakkuk, the prophet, stands in for us and cries out the same way we do. This man of God who was very familiar with the living God cries out, how long? Can't you see what's going on? God has something to say to us today about trusting Him when things get really messy in our lives. 
and really dark and we don't know where things are going. The challenge for all of us in these difficult times is our relationship with the Lord begins to get strained. We know it shouldn't. We know better. But all that we know about God, we, we know who He is. We know he, He's a, a loving God and that He cares about us. And we know that He's all-powerful and sovereign and can do something. But He's not doing anything. Or at least it appears to us He's not doing anything. Why are you letting me go through this agony? And all I get is silence from you. Why? And so we start to get resentful of God. Why is this happening? Why me? Why isn't God getting involved? Why are nasty people succeeding and righteous people are not? The matter of trouble is complex. There are kind of three perils that put us in the crosshairs of a messy time in our lives that, that all of us intersect with for the most part. First of all, we live in a fallen, broken world. Sin is everywhere. And the God of this world has blinded people to the truth. And so we live with a certain amount of collateral damage as a result of just the world that we live in. But we also are flawed ourselves. We realize that we have a long way to go, most of us, and there's a lot of growth that needs to take place. And we know our God is not satisfied to leave us where, he, where we are. And so he presses the issues of discipline and, and, and sanctification and moving us and growing us. And so we live in a fallen world. We have a flawed self. But, but thirdly, the third issue that puts us in the crosshairs of trouble is that we, we live in a, a community of God that is failing regularly. Regularly, the people of God, from the beginning of the Scriptures right through to the end, we all we read over and over again is that, that God's people are disloyal to Him or are not faithful to Him or not serving Him or serving the, the gods of the culture. And so we, we live in a failing community. These three things, fallen world, flawed self, and failing community, uh, put us into messy times. See, um, we'd like to think that if we're living okay ourselves and living righteously before God, that things should be all right for us. But because we live in a fallen world, because we live in a flawed community, a failing community, you see, when one or two or five or ten or twenty or all of us are sinning, it affects all of us. When we come in here with a cold... It works its way through the congregation. And so does sin. And so we live in this perilous reality whereby we are moving toward messy times. In fact, in Habakkuk, he writes here in the description on verse 14 of chapter 1, you've made men like fish in the sea. 
like sea creatures that have no ruler. The wicked foe pulls all of them up with hooks. He catches them in his net. He gathers them up in his dragnet. And so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and burns incense to his dragnet. For by his net, he lives in luxury and enjoys the choicest food. Is he to keep on emptying his net, destroying nations without mercy? God, what is going on? Everywhere he looks, all he sees is injustice and violence. And it appears that the very purposes of God are put at risk. Regularly, we can't understand why would God take that that strategic leader and and, and take them home to glory. Why? That, that seems to be putting something at risk, Lord. Why, why would you allow some sort of health challenge to come to someone and, and it seems to be putting some sort of obstacle in the ways of the Lord? Why do you do that, God? Why do you allow that to happen? It, it seems to be putting your very purposes at risk. And yet the unrighteous are prospering and succeeding. And so he cries out, Where is God when everything seems to be going in the dumpster? Violence, corruption. And of course, the enemies of our faith, they love to use these kinds of situations to say, there must be no God. If there was a God, why would he let you be going through this? Why would he allow you to suffer? Why would he allow you to have a health challenge? Why does he allow violence and, 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 and wickedness in the world and people hurting each other and wars and all that? Why? There, surely there can't be a God. So we say, Lord, see, listen to them. That's what Habakkuk was doing. He's asking the Lord, and there's two questions he basically asks that fundamentally are the same questions we ask. The first, of course, is how long? How long am I going to cry for help and you're not going to listen and you don't save me? How long? The Lord um, starts to answer him in verse 5. Look at the nations, he says, and watch and be utterly amazed. For I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. I'm on this, Habakkuk. God has not gone soft on sin when you see unrighteousness prevailing around you. Everything has an appointed time. That's what we're going to find out in chapter 2. Just write this down, for the revelation awaits an appointed time. And he tells them that, here's my solution. Now, in a few moments, I'm going to show you some some maps for those of you who like history and geography and want to get some orientation to all of this. Because we've been talking a lot about Middle East history, ancient history. We've been talking about prophets prophesying over hundreds of years and Hard to get our, our, our minds set and orientated in what, what's really going on. But suffice it to say that at the time of Habakkuk, it was still Assyria. Don't go there yet. It was still Assyria. That, that was the dominant force over centuries. And I'm, I'm talking about going back to 11, 1200 B.C. 
right up to the point of Habakkuk, which is pro- Habakkuk was probably written in around 612 B.C. They we're talking 600 years. As long as anybody can remember, the Assyrians were completely dominant all over. And so Habakkuk is talking about that moment, and, and he's looking around himself, and he's saying, like, how long, how much longer are the Assyrians, the wicked, unrighteous, ungodly, merciless Assyrians going to dominate us and threaten us? How much longer? God says, I'm about to do something you'd never imagine. Even if I told you, you wouldn't believe it. I'm going to raise up the Babylonians. Well, you know, you could have heard a pin drop when God said that to Habakkuk. He's like, what? That's your solution? That's how you're going to look after my sorry heart? You're taking one wicked nation and transplanting another one? That's, that's your solution? I mean, I've been asking how long, and I've been hoping you're going to say, well, not too much longer, but you're actually going to go from a seamless trouble to seamless trouble. That's not what I had in mind. From one diagnosis to a worse diagnosis? How is that helpful? How is that a solution? You're going to employ them? That's what he says. Oh, Lord, verse 12. Are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, we, surely we will not die. What? Oh, Lord, you have appointed them to execute judgment? Oh, rock, you've ordained them to punish? This is your instrument? Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. What are you doing? I want to um, share with you four things you need to remember or know from Habakkuk here. When your experiences seem to collide with your systematic theology... God, I know this about you. Your eyes are too pure to even look on evil and you are employing the Babylonians to be your servants. Something's not adding up here. So when your experience and circumstances and your visuals are colliding with your systematic theology, how are you going to survive? How are you going to thrive in this setting? Well, I want to give you four things to remember. The first of these is this. The absence of judgment doesn't mean judgment is permanently suspended. Remember several weeks ago, and we've been talking in various uh, sermons about the prophets, calling out to God's people to reform, to revive, to, to turn to God, to turn away from being disloyal to the gods of the land and turn back to God. And we have seen at various times where that has taken place. In fact, we preached a few weeks ago about Micah, Micah the prophet, who prophesied about a hundred some odd years before this time. And we prophesied about what Micah did. And Micah was prophesying at the end of the reign of Hezekiah and the Assyrians were crowding in on Hezekiah. And if you remember, Hezekiah finally called out to the Lord and, and great reform took place. 
Great revival took place. A great turning back to the Lord took place. And so we were excited as we read of that history and what God had relented from bringing His discipline upon His people. But right after Hezekiah came Manasseh, a king who did gross evil and wickedness in the sight of God after God had relented by His grace. Another king comes along because it it seems as God uh, gives grace to us, we start to take His grace for granted. And so Manasseh comes along. And so um, we've had this series of prophets prophesying, warning. Micah, last week Nahum, now Habakkuk. Let's get that graphic up there. As long as anybody can remember, the Assyrians have been dominant. In fact, what you're looking at, of course, is the Middle East at the time roughly of Jonah. And so you have, um, you have uh, this is the Assyrian Empire. You see that this is Israel right here. Assyrian Empire is not reached here, but they always con- continue to send raiding parties and, and uh, to, to uh, just destroy people. And so the, uh, Israel was upset about them. And of course, uh, this is the time of Jonah when Jonah was told, Jonah... He's living around here. Wants you to go to Nineveh. But Jonah got on a boat and headed to Spain. <laughs> but by the time he got out about here, a fish ate him <laughs> and barfed him up on the shore right about there. And he went to Nineveh, and we had a a brief respite from the Assyrian domination because they turned to God. And so Micah comes along, and and it was like this. And so there was like a hundred years of relative calm. But by the time Pastor Pastor Calvin preached last week, The Assyrian reality was this. God's people are now surrounded because there is this little place called Judah. By now, the northern tribes are gone. Samaria has fallen to Assyria. The Assyrians have taken over Egypt, the north of Saudi Arabia, Iraq, Iran, Iraq, northern Turkey, all of Syria, and most all of this land around. That's why Nahum cries out, what are you going to do about the Assyrians? And God promises to deal with the Assyrians. And so in 612 B.C., As Habakkuk is writing this in the early ministry of Jeremiah, when the state, uh, geopolitical state, looked like this, 
He's crying out, how long, oh God? Look what it, look at, look around, we're surrounded. How long is this Assyrian domination going to take place? And God says to him, I'm going to do something that would utterly amaze. You wouldn't believe it if you saw it or if someone told you. I'm going to take the Babylonians and I'm going to take them and sweep them across the whole earth. That's, that's ridiculous. That sounded completely ridiculous. In 612 BC, the Babylonians started a revolt. And they gathered a large army, relatively large army, went up to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, and in 612 BC, when Habakkuk is prophesying, and pushed the Assyrians to, to move their capital to Haran. They followed the Assyrians, and in a span of three years, they had pushed them from Haran to Carchemish, which was the new capital of Assyria. They had now dominated all this area, the Babylonians. The Egyptians heard of what was going on, and they were under the dominance of Assyria. They were a vassal of Assyria. It's historically hard to tell whether they were trying to help the Assyrians or saw a moment when they might seize power. But they gathered an army of 40,000 people. The uh, Babylonians had 18,000. An army of 40,000 that marched out of Egypt. And as they were cutting through here to go to join the battle of Carchemish, the southern tribes of Judah decided to make war on Egypt. And King Josiah, the righteous king, was killed. The Egyptians followed through here, and the battle uh, was great. The Babylonians, which no one would have pr predicted, destroyed not only the Assyrians, but they pushed the Egyptians back and slaughtered the whole army all the way here. E Egypt was never again a world power, not ever. And the Babylonians, in sight of seven years, from 612 to 605, had now taken everything, including Judah. And it's that context where Habakkuk is crying out to the Lord and now finds out that a worse group of people who were able to do that completely eradicate what had gathered for 600 years in a, a seven-year span were now going to be the dominant force. And we find out, of course, that the Babylonians would only exist 70 years and then the Persians would take them. So why in the world did this happen? Well, why did God allow this to take place? Well, we have to look at Kings to get an answer. In 2 Kings chapter 23. In 2 Kings chapter 23 and verse 26, at this historic time, at the end of the reign of Josiah, when everybody thought, well, Josiah, after all, he's... He's brought reforms back. Yes, we, Hezekiah reformed and then, and then Manasseh was wicked. But Josiah's brought reforms back. We should be okay. This Babylonian thing shouldn't be taking place. Here's what God says. Verse 26. 2 Kings 23. Nevertheless, the Lord did not turn away from the heat of his fierce anger which burned against Judah because of all that Manasseh had done to provoke him to anger. Wait a minute. Manasseh's dead. Yes, but God has a long memory. Our faithlessness 
our wickedness, our disloyalty is not forgotten by God. Whatsoever a man sows, that will he reap. So the Lord said, I will remove Judah also from my presence as I removed Israel, and I'll reject Jerusalem, the city I chose, and this temple about which I said, there shall my name be. Wait a minute, Lord. You're putting your purposes at jeopardy, aren't you? Why would you take that missionary off the field because of ill health? Why would you take that great leader down and take him to heaven? Why? Aren't you, aren't you putting your great purposes at risk? God's great purposes are never put at risk by God. Even when we can't understand what he's doing. Over in chapter 24, verse 2, the Lord sent Babylonian, Aramean, Moabite, Ammonite raiders against him. He sent them to destroy Judah in accordance with the word of the Lord proclaimed by his servants, the prophets. Surely these things happened to Judah according to the Lord's command in order to remove them from his presence because of the sins of Manasseh and all he had done, including the shedding of innocent blood, which was the sacrifice of children. Oh, I, I don't know. Do I have to make an application for that? For he had filled Jerusalem with innocent blood and the Lord was not willing to forgive. The absence of judgment doesn't mean judgment's permanently suspended. We need to understand two things that go on. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, yes? But that doesn't remove accountability. And so God regularly uses the wicked... To hold the righteous accountable. God gives the persistently wicked over to ex their extreme wickedness. If God removes his restraint from an Assyria, they go from being that size to that size. And we live in an, we live in an occupied world ourselves of unrighteous people. And so God removes his restraint that the persistently wicked might make the destructive choices that their rebel hearts want to make and God holds them accountable and, and thereby demonstrating that their, their eternal damnation is their just reward. At the same time, as he in fact allows the wicked to apparently triumph over us at times, that we might be disciplined Two things are happening in most situations. God regularly uses a mess to prove that the rebellious deserve damnation by their own choices and that the righteous respond to discipline. That's how God grows us and changes us. And so Habakkuk is asking this question, how long? And God's going to answer the question, I'm going to bring more discipline on you. It's whenever you have a collision between extreme cultural wickedness and traitorous, disloyal people of God, there is always human tragedy. Always. Does he ignore injustice? No. 
He has plotted against, he's already declared, I'm raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people, verse 6, who sweep across the whole earth to, to seize dwelling places, not their own. I, I know who they are. And then in chapter 2, he, he talks about them. Uh, Woe to them who, who pile up stolen goods. Woe to them who build a realm with unjust gain. Woe to them who build a city with bloodshed. Woe to them who give drink to his neighbors, pouring from the wineskin till they get drunk. Woe to all of them who, who see value in an idol since it's carved by them. And then he says to them in verse 16, you will be filled with shame instead of glory. Now it is your turn. Drink and be exposed. The cup from the Lord's right hand is coming around to you and disgrace will cover your glory. No, God has not forgotten about the wickedness of the unrighteous. But regularly they are the instrument disciplining his people so what should how should we feel about this I mean uh, should we feel confident should we feel hopeful should we feel encouraged about this and the answer is yes because there is nothing or no one in this world that is really ever rogue Revelation always awaits an appointed time. What is God up to? Well, look at chapter 2 with me, verse 1. So after he says all of this, after he lays out his heart before God in agony, uh, then he says, Habakkuk says, I will stand at my watch. I will station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me. I, I'm going to watch for the Babylonians coming. I'm going to watch to see what God has said and I will pay attention and, and what answer I am to give to this complaint. What am I supposed to say, Lord? What am I supposed to take to the people? I'm supposed to tell them that, hey, you've been dominated by Assyria and now you get dominated by Babylon. Wow, that's a sermon they're really going to line up to hear. What am I going to say to them? And this is what God says. Then the Lord replied, verse 2, Write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. He says, Habakkuk, take this message to your people and my people. If you look at the circumstances and you fix your eyes on the circumstances that you are presently in and are about to be in, it will not encourage your heart. But that's not how God's people are to live. We are not to live with our sight lines in the immediate. Our sight lines are to be the end. That's why he says to him, for the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end. You see, often we are thinking that history just keeps repeating itself and, and it doesn't seem to be heading in any direction and God would beg to differ. History is, you've heard before, His story. God is moving history. In spite of how it looks and the way it looks, God is moving his history ultimately to the end, which is his great final vindication 
his validation, his great victory when God is God over all creation and every knee will confess and every, tongue, or every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that God is Lord to the glory of God. That's why he says to him in verse 14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now back up the same way the Assyrians have spilled all over the place, God's glory will Cover the whole earth. Tell the people that. Tell the people in the midst of their peril, in the midst of their trouble, in the midst of their discipline, that God will fulfill his promise of vindication to those who remain righteous. His history is moving forward. The reason everything looks cyclical to us is because Satan uses the same strategies from generation to generation, from empire to empire. As we study history, Satan doesn't come up with different strategies or tactics because they work. And that's why the New Testament writers in particular said, people, we don't want you to be ignorant of, of, of Satan's ways, uh, our enemy's ways. You know his ways. They are consistently the same. And so what we see is Satan recycling his strategies Time and time again, and we continue to fall for it. The despots through the ages are recycled pawns of Satan at war against the glory of God. And our call is to shine in those times of horror, horror and wickedness and ruthlessness and the apparent unrighteous, uh, unrighteous people winning to shine for Christ in those times. Because nothing's rogue. Revelation awaits appointed time. In your Bible, in, in uh, Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, this holy week that we're, we're upon, is upon us, there, it's, there we're taught. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son. God is... God is marking out his program precisely according to the times that he has planned and purposed. Nothing is randomly happening. Uh, back in, uh, in Luke, when Jesus was, teaching, was speaking of the end times, what would become of Jerusalem and all that, that, that would come of that in Luke 21, 24, he states, they will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. There is coming a day when God will say, enough. Go tell your people that. But in the meantime... As, the, as you see, verse 4, he is puffed up and his desires are not upright. As you see the unrighteous apparently succeeding around you and enveloping your life the way Assyria enveloped Judah. As you see that with your eyes, know this, that the righteous will live by his faith. Judgment... Deferred is, and delayed is not judgment forgotten. Revelation awaits an appointed time, but thirdly, we as God's people need to know in trying times, in messy times, that the righteous will live by faith in all of this, in all of the scriptures, in all of the teaching that are, is brought from the scriptures. There's a, a consistent message, message that righteousness matters. 
in, in, the, in this messy time when Habakkuk throws it. So what does it matter? Jonah preached. Micah preached. Nahum preached. I'm preaching. And Assyria just keeps getting bigger. And now Babylonians coming. What, what does it matter? Does it really matter to be good and faithful before you, O oh God? And yes, God says, yes, know this. The contrast is stark. Those who live unrighteously, those who make up the, 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 uh, the uh, forces of wickedness, those who are merciless, those who are faithless, those who are puffed up, those who are proud, those who are dominating everyone, those who are, who are persecuting you, those who are mistreating you, those who are despitefully using you, those who are, are maligning you with untruths, will not live when the end comes, but the righteous will live by his faith. Now there's so many double mean, double entendre to that. You live every day by faith, but you will live ultimately by faith. That's the distinction between you and others to the proud and to the puffed up and to the megalomaniacs of this world. The purposefully wicked, the purposefully uh, unrighteous, only the righteous will live and only, only, only by trusting in God in spite of the sight lines, in spite of the circumstances, in spite of the fact that you're crying out, oh Lord God, how long am I going to be in this mess? The righteous are faith-filled. And the answer here is do not allow the experiences, Habakkuk, to cloud out the strength of the people. Therefore, write it down on tablets. Make the revelation known. Go and herald it. Go and tell people everywhere. This is what the living God promises. The same God who predicted the Babylonian conquest, which no historian would ever have anticipated. Are you serious? Assyria is going down to Babylon? Not a chance, unless God says it will. And then that's how history unfolds. And when God says Babylon will last for 70 years and then Persia, that's exactly what happened. And then when God says that Persia will fall to Greece, that's exactly what happened. And when Greece falls to Rome, that's precisely what happens. And when God says he will come back for us, that Jesus Christ will come for us, he means it and he will come and the end will come and it will matter that you're righteous and that you're living by faith. So the text says in verse 20, let the earth be silent before him. God is speaking. Be quiet, Habakkuk. Be quiet. Stand in awe, verse 2, chapter 3. Wait patiently, verse 16 of chapter 3. Go stand and look, but say no more, Habakkuk. The living God has spoken, and what he says will be, will be. And the righteous will live by faith when your job is coming to an abrupt end. And that's what you can see. The righteous live by faith, not by sight. When the news shakes your world that someone you love has months to live or maybe you have months to live, that's what you see. But the righteous will live by his faith. 
someone is prospering by lying at your expense. That's what you see. But the righteous will live by faith, trusting in God. When someone wrongfully accuses you and things are moving from bad to worse, that's what you see. But the righteous will live by faith. When someone you deeply trusted in betrays you, someone you loved, someone you loved with the depths of your heart betrays you, someone you believed in, that's what you see. But the righteous will live by faith, trusting in God. That's what's required of us. And so when you have, and you just don't know, you look around yourself and you can't reconcile what's going on, and you're satisfied that all you should have done has been done, and all that you can do has been done, and you've cried out to the Lord, and you keep crying out to the Lord. You step away as righteous people and trust in God. You get satisfied with being strengthened on the basis of total trust in the journey that Jesus has set out for you, even though it looks daunting and threatening and dark. There is a promise that this will end and God will be victorious. And that's what enabled a prophet like Habakkuk to conclude his prophecy in verses 16 through 19 when he says this, I heard, and and gives us a tremendous insight to his emotional makeup. Habakkuk was listening to God And he trusted in God. And he was a righteous living by faith. But it didn't change the fact that he was emotionally incredibly distressed. Beloved, listen. This preaching is not about the righteous will live by faith and a stiff stiff upper lip. And nothing can move you or nothing can harm you or nothing can hurt you. No, these messy times are painful. And we need each other to help each other. And they hurt And they're dark. And you don't know when you're getting out of this. And it's a mess. And Habakkuk describes how he feels. He says, I heard and my heart pounded. When you wake up every morning and your heart is still pounding, you laid down the night before and it was pounding and you thought maybe a night's sleep would help and maybe it won't be pounding in the morning. And it's still pounding in the morning because nothing's changed. And my lips quivered at the sound, and decay crept into my bones, and my legs trembled. He couldn't hardly stand. He was so distressed. I mean, we've known what the Assyrians were like, and you're bringing worse. I can't even imagine the collateral damage that's going to happen to us. What's going to become of me, of my kids, of my family, of my community? Of all those faithful people, what's going to become of us? Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. And then he says these amazing words. Because he faces reality. God isn't going to make this better right now. It's going to be like this for a while. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines and though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food and though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, 
Yet I will rejoice in the Lord and I will be joyful in God my Savior. This sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go on the heights. Oh God, God, I know you desire more from me. I know that you desire covenant loyalty from me, not contract loyalty. Like Job, Satan tries to call our bluff on whether or not we really love the Lord and really trust Him. And he went to God about Job and said, um, God said to him, have you considered my servant Job, man of faith? Satan said, the only reason that he worships you and loves you is because you have a protection contract with him. You look after him. Everything's great for Job. But you take away that hedge of protection from him and allow me to touch his life and he'll curse you to your face. That same tactic is used over and over and over again because the question continues to go out. Do you love God only because... He gives you good things and keeps your life like a Norman Rockwell painting? Or do you love him because of him? That's what took the three Hebrew boys into the furnace who said, our God who is able to deliver us, we will trust in him. And he is able to deliver us, but even if he doesn't, but even if he doesn't, that's the best phrase that believers can ever use in the time, in the messy times, but even if he doesn't, that phrase should come out of your lips very easily, but even if he doesn't, I will not bow to the gods of the land. And so Habakkuk takes the advice that Jesus gave to all of us in the wars and rumors of wars when they persecute you for my name's sake. They hated me, they will hate you. Jesus said this, see to it that you are not alarmed. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. For in my Father's house are many rooms. And I go and prepare a place for you. During messy times, God invites us to stop looking at the circumstances and once again look at him. And this is what Habakkuk did he took his deepest pain to God and discovered his deepest joy was in God. Do you see that? Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my Savior. He will be my strength. Beloved, we are never promised immunity from messy times. But in the midst of our deepest pain and hurt, 
we learn and experience that our deepest joy is found in God and God alone. Our Father, I pray this morning for us. The times are perilous. The landscape is daunting. The circumstances are not promising. The sight lines are scary. But, oh God, to know that you are totally in control and are working your purposes on behalf of your righteous ones strengthens our soul. Can we make it through this small time of life here for eternity's sake? And your answer to us is yes. Yes, you can. Because I will never leave you or forsake you. So thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So for now... The righteous will live by faith. Our sight lines will continue to look to the God who's promised us glory at the end. But for those who don't know Christ, their sight lines are not changing. Their sight lines will never change unless something changes in their hearts. So as God's people who have learned to, the righteous to live by faith, it's a call on our hearts to care, to look out upon our community, to look out with broken hearts and grieved hearts at those who don't know and have never heard. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. They need forgiveness because they are sinners and they should know but they don't know. And so I appeal to you on behalf of all those hearts that need the message of Jesus Christ, living in messy times that will never change for them unless their heart changes toward Christ. Would you take your card and find someone to give it to? If we can pray with you because you're in the midst of a real dark, dark time of the soul, we'd love to pray with you this morning. We'll be here at the front. Let's pray this week, this critical week for people's hearts. Father, we pray, we ask for salvation to come, oh God. We pray in the name and the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, who willingly took upon himself the pain and persecution of wicked people dying in our place that we might have rescue forevermore. And so we praise you and we ask that this salvation, this great salvation would move powerfully into this, the coldest region in North America. Oh God, if the Spirit of God would choose to break through here, Lord, revival could break through all of North America. Would you start it here, O oh God? For Jesus' sake, amen.